This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. There was this guy that used to hang out outside McDonald's and have this card game. I was always interested, but I saw that everybody had to put money down. I had no money. It was like my birthday or something, and I had $20, which was all the money I had in the world. And I was like, I could do this shit. And the first thing he does is he lets you win. And I'm like, this shit is easy. But I remember that I put my $20 down, and within three seconds, I lost it, right? But he said, I'm going to keep your money because you need to learn the lesson not to do this shit. Don't be a sucker. And he spent an hour with me teaching me how to hustle. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, fails, you are going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. My name is Jason Saltzman, and I am a social entrepreneur, which basically means that I have a double bottom line. I want to make money. I'm a capitalist, but I dream about how what I have to offer can really help people as well. My father was very successful. He was a C-suite of a Fortune 500 company, and he made a lot of money. And my mom enjoyed the fruits of that labor along with my sister early on. And I was way too young to remember what that was like living in a mansion. But my mother was not happy. She had a relationship with my father that did not provide her joy. And she sacrificed her happiness to be happy. She sacrificed having a stable financial background to become unstable to find happiness. She went back to school to get her master's degree so that she could become a teacher. She's always wanted to be a teacher. And when she married my father, she didn't have to work. And uh, she left that life. And we did that all the while living with my grandparents. So for the beginning of my life, I watched my mother just going back to college and reinventing herself and at a much older age. With that context, what do you think were the values that you were taught to laud and, and pursue? A tremendous amount of respect for women. For one, she was a badass. Imagine being so comfortable financially but you're not happy and you just leave that for the abyss of the unknowing whether or not you're going to be successful or not with two kids on your own. So I have so much respect for women uh, based on the, the role model that my mother created with me. I say that's number one. And number two, regardless of the risk, your happiness should come first. 
And that more than likely, if you follow happiness, good shit is going to happen to you because this is not a story of failure. This is a story of success. You developed this entrepreneurial uh, spirit pretty early on, probably inspired by just your your mother's ability to create the life that she wanted. And so can you tell me about how you stumbled on Three Card Monty? I lived about a mile away from a mall in New York. There was this guy that used to hang out outside McDonald's and have this card game. And he used to have a crowd of people around him while he was playing this card game. And I was always interested, but I saw that everybody had to put money down. I had no money. It was like my birthday or something. And I had $20, which was all the money I had in the world. And basically three card money is the game where you have three cards and you have to watch the person that's shuffling these cards. You have to pick the card uh, one of the cards that you're tracking. And if you pick it, you double your money that you bet on where the card is. And uh, I remember running, I rode my bike, rode it up to the mall, and there he was. And the first thing he does is he lets you win. And I'm like, this shit is easy. I'm like, take, <laughs> I've hacked I threw my the system. Down. I, that's it. I'm, I'm not working. My parents are suckers. My mom, everybody's just like, I'm doing this. This is what I'm doing. But I remember that I put my $20 down and within three seconds, I lost it. And I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm, my, my eyes are watery. And I remember him looking at me. I specifically remember him looking at me. And he said, I'm not going to give you your money back, but I feel bad for you. Because I'm a little kid. He just took money from a little kid. He must have been like 30 plus years old. But he said, I'm going to keep your money because you need to learn a lesson not to do this shit. Don't be a sucker. And he took me into McDonald's on one of these tables and he spent an hour with me teaching me how to hustle at Three Card Money. What were the tricks? There's a sleight of hand that's involved. By the way, who's ever listening to this, don't fucking play this game. The only <laughs> person that wins knows where the card is, and that's that's you who's doing it. You'll never win this game. And I took this with me uh, into elementary school. My mother used to give me a dollar a day because that's how much lunch costs. I was gambling with it in the cafeteria, in elementary school, and I took everybody's money. I made, that $20 was the best investment that I could ever make. I, I mean, I, you know, looking back, I mean, you know, I learned a lot and, and I still could play the hell out of that game. Sam, I'm, I, we do it right now and you'd be like, what the fuck? But I never taught anybody like he did. I didn't mind taking people's money. <laughs> Three Card Monty. It's a game that looks to be a test of skill and speed, but is really just an exercise in the dealer's salesmanship and sleight of hand. The American circus proprietor, P.T. Barnum, reportedly said, there's a sucker born every minute. And at the cost of just $20, Jason had gone from sucker to swindler. I can picture it now. A bunch of kids in the cafeteria crowding around Jason as he dares them to bet before winning all their dollars. 
But this was just the beginning of Jason's entrepreneurial journey on a path that would have many ups and downs. You take the lessons of this game with you. Did you ever stop? No, I played like a month ago. Not only did I not stop, like I got in trouble several times. My mother got called so many times, like, Jason's gambling again. And, like, how old are you? Like, 12 or 13? Yeah, I'm about that. I would say anywhere from 11 to 14 years old. Aside from my hustle, we used to uh, buy candy. Because you, you once you're trapped in elementary school, it's not like high school where you can leave the campus. So, like, you're stuck there, and these kids have money. So either you're gambling with me or you're buying candy from me. I was literally the candy man. And I fueled that enterprise with the money I made from Three Card Money. How much money were you making off this candy business? And were you like, did you get a little bit of notoriety? Yeah, I was. People stayed away from me unless you needed something. But the notoriety was bad because it always went back to my mother. My mother always knew that I was up to something. I just couldn't stop. And I didn't see the flaw in it, you know? I'm selling jawbreakers, not cocaine. Entering into my entrepreneurial career, I would say that I definitely joined the ranks of entrepreneurship for the wrong reasons. As much as I, we talk about, you know, how my mother was a great inspiration to me, we remember I grew up where a neighborhood was split into two. There was a right side of the tracks and a wrong side of the tracks. I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks with kids going to high school that had BMWs and really nice cars, and I couldn't even afford a car in general. And neither could my mother. I mean, she was, you know, just out of college, basically starting her career at that point. And we didn't have a lot of money, you know? So I grew up wanting. That was my, my entry into entrepreneurship. I was hungry to win. I wanted to win. I was dating this girl who her brother was driving a Ferrari and a Hummer and he lived in this sick apartment and he was in his early 20s. And he told me, you know, you're about to go into college, but you have the gift of gab and you could speak really well and you can convince people to do things and I could turn you into a millionaire. So come with me. And that was my way in. <laughs> that was it. Uh, it just so happens that that business was in call center marketing. But at an early age, I was on the phone smiling and dialing. This was an era of, of taking a list uh, and calling the shit out of it until someone said yes. With your girlfriend's brother, what did you admire about him? Was it just the money? Like what, what was in so enticing about that lifestyle? And well, he came from the wrong side of the tracks too, and he made his own money and that was very inspirational. But I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Boiler Room. Boiler Room is this movie about stockbroking and, you know, people just making a fortune on the phones, basically ripping people off. And there was a character in that movie that Ben Affleck played and he personified who this guy was to me. He was this tall, handsome guy. And he, he says this famous line. 
Anybody tells you money's the root of all evil doesn't fucking have any. They say money can't buy happiness. Look at the fucking smile on my face. Ear to ear, baby. You want details? Fine. I drive a Ferrari. 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have He's silver tongue. You walk in a room and he personified charisma. And he can get anything. That power was so addictive, right? That sales power, that use your voice and words to convince people to do shit. He did it to me. It was like a Jedi mind trick. The marketing and selling like advertisement and leads, which is what we were doing, we were fueling sales offices that were, that were, that were selling people consumer debt services. That didn't move me. That didn't motivate me. The product itself, but helping people did. I found myself wanting to, when I got on the phone with these people, really wanting to help them. And that's, I guess, where my mother came in. You know, like that good side, you know, where, you know, the skill sets that you grow over time, maybe they're not for the right reasons. Maybe they're for money. Maybe your motivations are to be rich. But over time, you know, it becomes different. Your motivation changes because the joy goes away from all those like gold star ego driven products and certain things like that. You felt like you were giving people something that they needed. So if there's like a little bit of altruism involved and there's a lot of money involved, what was missing? Well, the culture of the company wasn't right. Uh, there was a lot of uh, not scalable things that I wasn't liking about the way that the business was run. Like, for instance, if it was this is a different day and age, right? If you it, it's not in the age of. Uh, treating your employees so well that they feel so special and be creating an open, vulnerable environment, the beautiful culture that we have today. If you weren't on the phone, you'd get something thrown at your face. Not like a tennis ball. Talk about like a like a glass ash ashtray shattered like uh, like two inches away from my nose. You know, I didn't like that environment. And to be honest, that type of environment leads to a back-end process that wasn't really fully helping people to the ability that I felt if I did it on my own, I could help people even more. So what was the moment that you had to leave? Like, was it, was it just a, a compilation of a bunch of things that you hated or was there a moment where you're like, I gotta get out of here? It was sort of a, a, a series of stub toes with like a complete understanding that if I did this on my own, I would do it even better. And I do remember there was one instance where one of the managers in the office got up and started cursing at everybody. And he fired like 10 people, like in one clip. And I said to myself, I don't want to be part of this culture. So at that point, when I realized that I had an option in my life, which was either to retreat and to join the ranks of a company that like get a job that my father could provide or one of my friends could provide and or start my own company. And I chose the latter and I never looked back. And so what was that new thing? 
It was a very similar business, except I got to pick the back-end service provider that helped people. I got to vet them. I got to look at the notes from the Better Business Bureau. I got to learn better system management and, and develop culture and hire the people that I wanted around me. What were your uh, tenets of culture? Like, what was the culture that you, you you saw something that you didn't like previously? So what was the culture that you wanted to build and how did you go about building that? I wanted to rule by knowledge and not fear. So I wanted the people around me to have the ultimate skill sets based on knowledge. And when they enrolled people into a program that was helping them like get out of debt, like they knew everything about it rather than just looking at the numbers on a wall. So I wanted it to be less competitive over money and making numbers and more about mindshare and awareness and customer first, their outcomes over our outcomes. Do everything possible to help people and you will be successful. And I could not flex that at the old spot. And I knew I had to start my own to make that a reality. I get the overarching idea of how you're creating that culture, right? So you said it's, you want it to be less competitive and more of a mind share. But what's the actual framework that you do do? What were some things that you did to curate that? Like, what's some tangible advice? So for one, in the old company, you got on the phone right away selling and you sort of learned as you went. There was a script, but that was it, right? With me, before you even talked to anybody for real, you had to go through a 30-day sales training. And you took a test to prove that you understood the curriculum in order to get on the phone and help these people. And I brought in a veteran in the space to create that material and to implement it within our training. So it was less of a sales training and more of an education. And I hired more empathetic people. I looked for more trustworthy people. I looked for people that I felt that were going to lift up our spirits. I looked for more of a guidance counselor background rather than a sales efficient background. But how can you prove empathy? One of the things that I used to love to do is take prospects out to lunch and see how they treated the waitstaff. You know, these are things that you could think like, you know, the the reality, what I've learned over the years is if somebody treats somebody like shit, chances are that's systemic. So I would try to figure out ways of finding that out without asking them. Because in a job interview, dating somebody, you, you don't know who you're in front of for the first time. Like you're putting on your best face. This is this is your best act, right? So really your interview was just more holistic. Like that's what Absolutely. you have to do to, to hire empathetic people. You can't be completely data dri- dri- driven. You have to be holistic in your process. Another thing is like training yourself to hire people that aren't like you. Cause ultimately you're, you're automatically gonna like somebody who bonds with your culture. But like ultimately you realize that if you hire people that are like you, how are you gonna get other points of view? And then how are you going to grow a business where you need more than one point of view to scale to the masses? 
you learned how to create this great culture. You learned how to hire the right people. And I want to take this up to your current company, Relief, where you're trying to solve debt problems, but for a younger age group. Tell me about how the idea for that started and where it is today. Well, to start, just to go back in time really quick, we were really successful. I was right 20 years ago. We were, we were making money. We were, we were treating people properly, but I didn't feel that these people should be paying us the money that they were. That was my biggest qualm with the business. 20 years ago, I said to myself and to anybody that would listen, this business needs a shift. Debt consolidation and debt settlement should not be charging people fees. These people don't have money in the first place, but there was no other way to make money. And you have to understand this was pre-iPhone era, so we didn't have access to scalable technology and venture capital was not where it is today, where they're willing to throw large blocks of money at big vision ideas to make money later on. There was none of that shit. So I shut down the business. As successful as it was, I realized over time that this industry needs to change if we really want to make a dent. So I left the business. Now we could talk about relief because during the pandemic, uh, I, much like a lot of us, we got to take a step back and think about the impact we want to make on earth while we live. And debt is a horrific problem a systemic problem that's just tearing people apart. When you start to look at the data and you start to look at suicide rates in America and divorce rates, they're closely tied to financial issues. They, they rise up with the numbers of toxic debt. And I thought to myself, if I could do something about this, because there's no solution at scale right now. I don't give a fuck what anybody says. There's not one system that you could t point to and say, that works to get people out of debt. Doesn't exist. And why not? And I kept asking myself, why not? And that's what we believe relief will be. So we spent a year in discovery before we even raised any money. We spent a year in due diligence to develop the schematics around the technology and the business model infrastructure to see how we would actually bring this to fruition. And we learned so much and nothing's really changed over the last 20 years when it comes to debt, the industry itself, debt collection, debt settlement, debt consolidation. It's still ugly, shitty, disgusting. Everything you think of a three o'clock in the morning commercial asking somebody that has problems to sign up for your service to call a 1-800 number. It's still like that where there's an app for everything. There's an app that could pick you up at your front door with a limo and deliver you any food on the fucking planet. Why isn't there an app to handle one of the deepest problems this country has, which is toxic debt? So we took our schematic to a few venture capitalists just to get feedback. And within three weeks, we raised an oversubscribed seed round and we actually had to give money back because to make room for new partners, and we raised that money and our assumption was we'd go to market and we'd have a few hundred users to start. We are in the tens of thousands. Wow. And we were right. Wow. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal growth. I've How never seen- How does it seen... feel to be right? 
Like you had this feeling 20 years ago and now that feeling is catching up to the technology, but also your solution. How are you feeling about that? I'm happy that we have a viable business that makes sense. I'm sad that the problem is so much bigger than I thought by the nature of people that are just coming to us. And it's sad. The data is sad. I mean, it's a real, real problem. You have people that are hiding from the problem, which is costing them more money. Every day that goes by paying interest and late fees in a toxic debt scenario is costing consumers money. And it's not rich people, right? These institutions make more money off poor people than they do on wealthy people. And when you find out that these people are not living their best lives because of this, it's fucking sad. When they cannot go on vacation for the last five years, and some of them are paying Visa, MasterCard, and American Express, rather than feeding their own children three square meals a day, it's fucking sad. So with this problem, you're addressing it, you have a beautifully designed app, and uh, you're really just trying to help people with debt to pay it off in an efficient and logical manner. Could you just give a little bit more about like what the app actually does, how it looks, who's it targeted at? If you could just give a little bit more concreteness to what it is. Sure. So one in three Americans are falling behind in their credit cards. We have two systems built inside our app. One is a debt negotiation tool that negotiates directly with your creditor and cuts down the principal balance of what you owe. Now, this is if you're in a hardship scenario, it's an alternative to bankruptcy, and it's so you don't continuously fall behind on your credit card. So it's for those who can either only afford to make their minimum payments or those that even can't make their minimum payments. We're going to go in and help you cut your balance because there's a negotiation that's there that the creditors are willing to do. So we create a bridge to make that happen automatically for absolutely free. It's completely automated. And on the other side of things, if your credit is in a little bit of a better scenario and you have a better credit score and you just want to save money, we provide financing that will combine all your bills into one monthly payment. That's going to be a lower interest rate than paying right now. And it it mostly speaks to a crowd, the 99% of the world that finds themselves getting into financial issues, right? Normal people, you know, our current banking system, when you make a mistake, it kicks people out and it's really hard to get back in and it's very costly. We need to destroy that. So you're working on destroying it. It sounds very exciting. And again, like the the app looks beautiful. So what advice would you give to yourself maybe 20 years ago about what you're doing today or even when you were playing three card Monty? Like what advice would you give to your younger self so you could maybe get to where you are a little bit more efficiently, a little bit more quickly and maybe uh, with a little bit less mistakes? Well, the one thing is I I love my younger self because it it brought me to be the man I am today. Even if though I did things for the wrong reasons and some of the things I did were wrong, to develop the powers that I have today to use for good, I have to respect that. So I don't regret anything. 
However, I would like to go back to my younger self and to tell myself to not be so hard on myself and enjoy the journey more because you can't really predict the outcome. It'll never be exactly what you think it is, but you can make efforts to enjoy the journey, which is going to in turn make you enjoy your life more. For many Americans, debt is a serious issue. A recent study found that the average American holds $53,897 in personal debt. The average credit card debt for Americans is $6,200. That, combined with the fact that 38% of Americans can't come up with $500 in cash without selling something or taking a loan, means that people are struggling. However, Relief has a new tool for debt negotiation. It is an alternative to bankruptcy and a total game changer. It's just like Jason when he was first playing three-card Monty. When you study and learn the rules of a game, you learn tips and tricks to help you win. And that is what Jason is doing, helping others in debt win the game of debt management. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Don. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Nay B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox, Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Luis Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibada Thrive, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang. Jonathan Wass and Diana Marie Candazza. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.